All right, let's, uh, let's get to it. You guys ready for a little Matthew? Yeah, let's do it. Matthew chapter 13 is where we are in our Through the Bible study. Matthew 13. A young couple from the country uh, had, a, had their wedding and they were not, not uh, very well off, but they had a wealthy uncle who provided the honeymoon uh, or, you know, uh, hotel and the trip and everything. And he said, oh, you guys are gonna love it. I got you hooked up, you know, this wealthy uncle. Well, they flew the flight to the, you know, tropical getaway and they went in and, and uh, they checked into the lobby that, oh, this is nice, you know, and, and then they went to their room and um, their luggage was dropped off there. And, and, but they were a little shocked. They were, they were surprised how small the room was. It was 12 by 12. Uh, and it, it uh, had just a little couch that was kind of one of those pull-out beds, and um, it was uh, just this little room, and it, the Martinelli's was on the counter, and there was a light, even a TV, but they thought, man, we were kind of expecting more, you know? And, but after a few days, the young man was a little suspicious. He went into the hotel lobby and said, man, uh, you know, it's a little smaller than we, we imagined, and they said, small? It's like the biggest room in our hotel. And... Uh, and they, uh, they, he said, well, okay, well, thank you. You know, it's nice, you know. And uh, so they spent the rest of the week there. And at the end of the week, you know, there was only one day left and they, they saw there was a door they hadn't checked, you know, one of the closet doors or so they thought. But they opened the door and they realized they were in the entryway of their room, <laughs> the entry hallway. The room opened up to a 1,500 square foot suite with a spa and luxury bathrooms and all the fancy stuff. And uh, they spent the last day sort of sad. <laughs> Some Christians only approach the Bible in that way. They get into the entry and say, oh yeah, God, God bless America. And there's stories in the Bible about, you know, Noah and going up the, the Mount Sinai or something and how uh, Zacchaeus climbed up a mountain and uh, there's stuff like that. Uh, you know, and Moses built an ark and stuff like that. Uh, and people think they have a handle, a grasp on the word of God. But I, I'm so thankful for a church that says, hey, let's take Bible study seriously. And I'm thankful that we get to go through the Bible together. And, uh, you know, even with Athe Greek verse by verse, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. I want you to know that because, man, the Bible is, I love it. It's a little pool that even a child can wade in and enjoy the refreshing blessing of the word. But it's also a depth that even the smartest people in the world have never been able to fully fathom the depth of the word of God. And so I hope you understand that, that man, we're just scratching the surface here at Athey Creek. Um, but that's the goal is to kind of introduce us to the Bible and maybe in your own personal time to even take it uh, deeper. Go st and there's so many resources and studies we can do. But that's what I wanna do uh, tonight is, is dive into these uh, parables of Jesus, uh, the kingdom parables as they're often referred to. And it's here in Matthew chapter 13. And we begin in verse one. It says, the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Now the Sea of Galilee, uh, I love that Jesus just goes out to sit by the sea. Um, it's a beautiful spot. And when we go to Israel, it's one of the things you can do when we go to Israel is wake up in the morning and go sit by the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's almost surreal. I remember the first time being there, just kind of 
just like, I'm at the Sea of Galilee. I was like, so, so amped up. It was hard to get like devotional, you know what I mean? In my mindset, uh, like, wow, the Sea of Galilee. But um, it, it really is beautiful there. And you can see why Jesus would get up and sit by the sea, but the multitudes would come there. And um, the Sea of Galilee, again, you know, it's, it's also today called Lake Tiberias or Lake Kinneret. Um, by the way, did you know the Sea of Galilee is the second lowest lake in the world? Uh, the first lowest is the Dead Sea. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is 705 feet below sea level. Uh, the Dead Sea is uh, 1,412 feet below sea level, interestingly enough. But it's, uh, the Sea of Galilee is 13 miles by eight miles, roughly, uh, depending on drought and stuff like that. But uh, the surface area is about 64 uh, square miles, uh, the Sea of Galilee. Lake Superior is 350 miles by 160 miles. So if you can kind of get the, the, uh, the, you know, the difference, you could almost fit 500 Sea of Galilees in Lake Superior. So it's, we, we would call it a nice lake here in the United States. Um, but Jesus is there by the Sea of Galilee and a crowd starts to gather. And how do, in a day where you didn't have sound systems and stuff, how do you address a large crowd without a PA system. Well, I love it that Jesus uses some of the natural uh, physics of what's going on here with the, with the sound. I believe that's why he gets out into the, the sea in the boat. Um, you boat people know how this is. Have you ever been on the river and you're uh, on your boat and then you'll see a, a boat like a half a mile down the river and they'll, they'll be talking and it almost sounds like they're right there next to your boat, even though they're half a mile away. If you were to try to do that you know, on land, the land, sort of the un, you know, even surface of dirt and trees and bushes and weeds, it sort of breaks up the audio you know, stream, if you would. But when you're on water, especially if the water's really smooth and, and if the water's colder than the air, then um, there's some physics there that kick back and it makes it so the sound travels very quickly and easily across this, the, the water. And so um, that's probably what Jesus is doing. He's, he's pushed out a little bit, sitting in a little boat. Again, the word says ship, but that's the King James you know, sort of embellishing uh, what we would call it a, a little boat, almost a little bigger than a dinghy maybe. The Jesus goes out into this little boat and then he speaks with his voice bouncing off the water to the shore where everybody's listening. Um, and so, you know, potentially uh, he could be talking to several thousand people. Um, if you could only imagine that, uh, it'd be really something. Um, but Jesus gets in the boat um, and, um, and uh, he starts to, to speak more uh, in, um, in parables. By the way, um, one of the things that uh, I love about, you know, one of my favorite Bible teachers of, uh, you know, the 1800s was Charles Spurgeon, who had the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And I've been there, and it's kind of sad because today, you know, they built walls where it used to be a giant sanctuary. Uh, here's some pictures of the old uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Um, but, um, you know, it was, it was, it was, but it was, they had to speak without a PA system back in those days. So they would build these sounding boards to sort of reflect his voice. He had a big booming voice. Um, and he did whole lectures to young men about how you're supposed to speak with power. And you, you know, he said something like, unless you weigh 250 pounds, you're not even worth being a pastor or something, something like that. I, I love this guy. But um, he, uh, he had this big booming voice and um, they were building some of these, these sounding boards. I love this story here in this Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he, was, you know, he went in on an afternoon when, when they were finishing up and he just tried it out. And he quoted John 3.16. And after quoting John 3.16, they heard weeping in the room. Like, where's that weeping coming from? 
And it was one of the carpenters that was finishing up up in the rafters. Uh, he'd heard the John 3.16 and, and Spurgeon speaking it with power. Uh, and the guy repented and accepted Jesus that very day, uh, just from hearing John 3.16. It's a great story. Uh, but all that to say, um, that's, that's how you know, Spurgeon did it. With, he'd have you know, 1,500, 2,000 people in this building, and they'd have several services, uh, to say the least. Um, but, but I love how Jesus was able to address you know, the crowds and speak to thousands and thousands of people. Um, Jesus knew how to dial that in. Um, and we also know the possible location on the Sea of Galilee is probably near where Peter lived at Capernaum. And that's where a lot of these kingdom parables would be uh, uh, spoken right there by the Sea of Galilee in near or in Capernaum, just so you can get kind of your bearings there. But we now come to parable number one, and you guys know this from Sunday or Saturday if you're with us. Um, it's called the parable of the sower is what we're gonna call it, verses three through nine. Let's just review. It says in verse three, and he spake many things unto them in parables saying, behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell on stony places where they had not much earth and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So we looked at this on Sunday. We saw the sower is the Lord, the seed is the word, and the soil is the heart of man. Um, and and these, are the, these are the kind of the things that uh, we went over on Sunday. We talked about the the four different types of soil, the fouled up soil with the birds of the air picking up the seed, the shallow soil of the heart, um, the distracted soil of the heart, uh, where the thorns of the world, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches come and pluck out the, or choke out the seed. And then there was the healthy heart, the ready heart that was ready to receive um, the um, the word there. So that's, that's where we go with this is um, the seed. Now this, this parable, uh, we'll see his commentary later on that we looked at on Sunday, but um, th there's a common thread in the first you know, parables that we're looking at and they very much have to do with very similar themes and, and we need to make sure and connect the dots there. So keep all that um, tucked away. And then we go on in verse 10. It says, and the disciples came and said unto him, why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Now, this is an interesting direct question. Hey, Jesus, why are you telling us stories in parables? Like, what's the deal with that? And Jesus gives us the, he's gonna give us several reasons why he does this. The first reason uh, is um, given to us, um, and it's kind of important to maybe jot these down because uh, some people get confused. Yeah, why does Jesus talk in parables? I remember as a kid thinking, man, what's this thing about the mustard seed and trees and birds? And it just seemed confusing to me. But when you realize what the purpose why did Jesus speak in parables? It starts to make sense when you kind of understand. And Jesus gives us the answer to that, um, where he says, uh, verse 11, because um, it's given to you, looking at his disciples, to know the mysteries 
um, uh, of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, now who's the them there? Maybe it's the Pharisees, the scribes, um, you know, the Sadducees, or to some Jews that will be unbelieving Jews. Uh, we'll talk about that further. But um, the, the first reason Jesus gives us here is simply to reveal secrets to his disciples. Now, if you want, you can be less mysterious and put to reveal truth to his disciples. But the word secrets is used there. Um, the, the word verse 11 in the King James is mysteries. But if you look at the ESV, I like the ESV way of putting it. Um, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. Uh, mysteries and secrets. Those are kind of the uh, words. And there is a certain mysterious nature to what he's saying. There's something being sort of uh, concealed as a mystery. And Jesus is helping those with the desire to believe and understand the more complex things. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna help you out with that. And I'm gonna connect some dots through the parables. Um, and by the way, I think that's just like what the Lord likes to do with people that are here tonight, or if you're watching online and you're joining us in a through the Bible study, you guys are here to say, let's, let's understand what the Bible says. And one of the things that the Lord always says is, you know, seek and you will find. Um, knock and the door will be open. Ask and it'll be given to you. Like this is the nature of the Lord. Anybody who comes with a true heart to seek the Lord, I think that they're gonna find him. And that's, that's kind of what's going on there. But there's the other side of the coin. People are like, yeah, 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 we'll see about that. And they come with more of a, a critical nature or even a sinful, cynical heart about God or Jesus or the Bible. And uh, I think that's a dangerous posture to approach the Bible. Um, you know, and so... Um, I love that uh, he's going to reveal these secrets. Now, one thing that I, I need to say is um, this is Jesus bridging the gap from the secrets of the Old Testament uh, as it relates to the kingdom to the New Testament truths of the kingdom. And the reason I say that is Jesus can do that, but you can't. What do you mean? Well, if you come to me and say, Brad, I have unlocked some new mysteries of the kingdom I'm gonna think you're just a weirdo uh, because there are no new mysteries of the kingdom. Jesus revealed them. Uh, and I think it's important because, um, you know, it's the old, if it's, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. When it comes to theology, as it relates to the Bible and God's word, there's nothing new under the sun. I think that we need to understand that be careful about new new discoveries. I have found the mystery of... Now, now there's a difference between somebody uh, seeing something in scripture for the first time and saying, wow, I never have seen this before. And maybe that's what sometimes we as pastors and teachers get to do is sort of uh, show things in the Bible that maybe we've not noticed before. But be really leery of you know new theology that comes out. Now, there is, by the way, one discipline in studying the Bible that I think we're still having the mystery revealed and unveiled. But I'm gonna say that there's only one area of that. Um, all the other areas, as far as the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, they're locked down. You know, and that's been true for a long time. So when Joseph Smith came and said, I have a new understanding, the new gospel, the New Testament, uh, people should have shut that down because we were locked in. Theology was locked in at that point. That's why Paul said to the Galatians in you know, chapter one, he said, if we or an angel from heaven give unto you another gospel other than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Uh, the early Mormon followers should have just said, yeah, no, 
That's, that's, that's not right. Because Moroni is an angel. And Paul said, if an angel or if Paul myself comes with another testament or another gospel, um, let that angel be accursed. That should have been the, the procedure at that time. Any people that come, well, we have a new, whether it's the Watchtower Society in Brooklyn or you know Oprah, who's got new understandings of the third eye of understanding uh, or whatever, uh, you can just say, eh, that's just wrong. Uh, I love how theology is locked down uh, and we should stick with that. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. The one area we get to uh, still understand that it's being unlocked is prophecy, Bible prophecy. Um, the closer we get to the time of the end, the Bible says we'll start to understand prophecy. You might call it eschatology, uh, the study of end times. Um, that's, that's being revealed and get, getting clearer and clearer to us as we get closer to the end. Um, do you remember Daniel wouldn't understand the mysteries that he was writing about? He would, he would write the chapter uh, and then he'd go and say, man, I just don't even know what I was talking about. Like Daniel chapter 12, the Lord told Daniel in January, Daniel 12, four, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. So even Daniel's book, yeah, seal it up. When, when is it gonna be unsealed? Well, this is where it gets really interesting because uh, the time of the end, and, and boy, we could talk about what the time of the end is and, and how long a thousand years is, and it's a little bit of a relative argument when you talk about a day with the Lord is a thousand years. But be that as it may, we see the book of Daniel unlocked in the book of Revelation, and we start to see how it's gonna unfold. And no longer do, do these things stay locked um, that's why the book of Revelation, uh, similar words, but uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, at the end of that book, it says, seal not the words of this book up um, because we're getting closer to the time of the end. So all that to say, um, you know, seal up the book. Uh, Daniel, uh, that, that unsealing of the book of Daniel would be as we get closer to the end. That's kind of the important part. So all that to say, Jesus now is gonna sort of unveil the mysteries of the kingdom with speaking in parables. So why did Jesus speak in parables? Um, well, number one, to reveal truth or reveal secrets. You could put it either way to his disciples. Number two, Jesus um, gives us another one. Look at verse 12. It says in verse 12, for whosoever hath to him, uh, pardon me, for, for whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they, seeing me not, and hearing they hear not, neither, neither do they understand. It's like Jesus is saying, there's gonna be people who understand the parables, and there's gonna be people that don't. Now the question then becomes, uh, why would he do this? He's saying basically, point number two, he's, he's, he, he speaks in parables, number one, to, to reveal secrets or truth to his disciples, but number two, to conceal secrets to unbelievers. Why would he do this? Why would Jesus conceal truth? Um, and I, I think this is the way I would say it. You know, If you really don't wanna know the truth, the Lord will see to it that you don't. That's kind of what the Bible teaches. If you don't like it, I'm sorry, but this is Jesus and who are you? So uh, just kind of say, okay, uh, just hope and pray that you're one of the people that, that get to see it. 
And man, we can get into predestination, divine election, uh, that you are you know, called, chosen, uh, adopted. We get into some heavy doctrine about, about who gets to be saved and who doesn't. Free will, God's sovereignty. It gets into all that stuff. But, but I always like to, you know, we can talk about that and we will when we get to those passages talking about all that. But I also like to bring it back to just the simple truths and, and just kind of the simple stuff. And Jesus is saying, some people are gonna get it, some people are not. And if you don't really want to know the truth and you're plugging your ears like the Pharisees of this time, then you're not gonna get what he's saying. Um, the Lord will never short the, shut the door, I, I would say, to, to a person who really wants to hear. He makes it you know, clear uh, and, and, and that is, is his reason for speaking in parables. He's giving them an open door to understanding for those who really wanna hear. Those who don't want to hear, Jesus said, they're gonna mysteriously not understand uh, the parables. Now, um, the parables are kind of interesting because um, it's, it's gonna reveal some real solid truth. And, and the question is, do you understand who Jesus is? Because that's gonna be the point of the kingdom. Who's the, who's the main character in a kingdom? The king. Jesus is the, 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 um, the main point of the kingdom. And um, you know, you read scriptures like Revelation, you know, chapter 22, verse 13. I, Jesus would say, is the, I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Um, if you would, this is Jesus is everything <clears throat> and everything in between. He's our all in all. He's, you know, and, and the most important question in the world that you will ever deal with is not who will you marry or what college will you attend or what will be your career? The most important question you'll ever face, I think, in this world is what do you believe about Jesus Christ? That's the most important question you'll ever face. Do you accept him as your savior and Lord uh, who died on the cross for your sins? Or do you think he was just some good teacher and nice guy and kind of had a tragic end, but oh well. Um, it's, it's, it's gonna be up to whether you're open to hearing the king uh, and especially these parables about the kingdom. Um, and, uh, and this is really kind of an important thing. So, so um, why did Jesus speak in parables? He's doing it to reveal the truth um, to uh, those that would be, have ears to hear but conceal the secrets to unbelievers. Um, it's interesting to me because um, I have to say, if you're an extremely intellectual person, I would caution you because I, I've noticed that there's this tendency to let your intellect sort of dictate right out of the gate what you think about Jesus. And sometimes intellect can be a great barrier to just having a childlike faith and that's what's required in understanding Jesus and just believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And a lot of times the very extreme intellectuals will just automatically approach with sort of a cynicism. And I almost wonder if, if that's one of the things, you know, I mean, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they were the intellectuals of the day. And they're the ones that, yeah, what, you want us to believe that this guy from Nazareth this kid that grew up as a carpenter's son, this guy that's going around talking and saying stuff about mustard seeds and birds, are you kidding me? Like the, their intellect was the very thing that kept them from having a faith um, in Jesus. It's interesting to me because I, I, I learned this so um, closely in, in my secular uh, university where I attended at Southern Oregon. I remember in a world lit class, um, this one prof made it his almost the whole class goal to sort of try to discredit the Bible. 
And um, I, I'll never forget the final exam. There was one question and we had to write an essay and turn in the essay on the one question. And his question was this, why do Bible scholars and theologians wince when they hear the words, what's in the original text? That was the question that we had to write a whole final exam. Now, if you took the class and you heard the airbag uh, you know, professor uh, go on and on, he was you know, uh, so excited about there are no original manuscripts of the Bible. And that's his whole point. And you had to write something to that extent. You know, that was what he's expected. Well, there are no original manuscripts. Um, which is so disingenuous because, I mean, you can talk about so many things on that. Um, there's no original manuscripts of just about anything that's ancient literature. Um, and suddenly it's required that the Bible has the original manuscripts, whether we're gonna believe it or not. Um, it's interesting because we have more manuscript evidence of the Bible than any other work hundreds and hundreds of times over. Um, so the Bible is more supported by ancient manuscripts uh, and copies than any other work in the history of the world by far. But it's funny how he's just bloviating about how there are no original texts. And that's why you can't rely on the Bible. And that, like he was looking for that answer. So what I did, cause you know, you have to kind of play the game with these college professors. So I said, what we learned in your class. <laughs> and I explained all of his windbag stuff. And then I said, but one thing that we didn't consider in class um, you know, because he, he went into stuff like, and, and I kind of went on and on about, like he went on about how Jonah and the whale couldn't have happened. Daniel's, the book of Daniel's a forgery because Porphyry said it was a forgery and it was written in some way in 90 AD. And he went on all this stuff. But um, I, I, I kind of made my argument this uh, in that essay. I, I basically said, you know, it's interesting to me that Jesus um, signed, all of, signed his name to all the Old Testament manuscripts. He talked about jo all the most controversial, Jonah and the big fish. He talked about that. He talked about Daniel and the lion's den. He talked about Daniel and the abomination of desolation. And all the most controversial things this professor kept bringing up, um, Jesus spoke of and signed his name to him. And so I just signed at the end and said, um, one question, do you know more about the Bible than Jesus Christ? And it was kind of a funny uh, thing. I was thinking I was gonna get an F. He gave me an A. Uh, I still have the paper. Uh, and he, he gave me an A and he said, worship your God in awe. <laughs> Interesting. Kind of heartbreaking though, because Dr. Casebeer uh, was not really one who believed in Jesus. And, I, and just saying worship your God, it, it's kind of heartbreaking because it was his intellect that was kind of getting in the way. The big question is, what are you gonna do with Jesus Christ? Because Jesus either was a liar or a lunatic or he was the Lord and he knew what he was talking about. And there's all kinds of evidence that Jesus fulfilled all the things he said. And there's more evidence of Jesus dying, being buried and resurrecting from the grave which gives him the authority way better than some college professor at Southern Oregon University. Um, and that's the thing. What are you gonna do with Jesus Christ? Um, so that's kind of important. And that's where these Pharisees are, they've got sort of a mental block. So Jesus is speaking in parables. They're already rejecting Jesus. We've established that in chapter 12. They were looking to kill him already. Um, but because they were coming with that presupposition, we need to kill Jesus, they're, the door was shut to them. They were not gonna understand um, these parables. So back to our list here. Um, Jesus spoke in parables to reveal secrets to his disciples, to conceal um, secrets or truths to the unbelievers. Um, but then number three, he was also doing it to fulfill prophecy. And we see that in verse 14. Here's where Jesus defends what he's doing. When the disciples say, why do you speak in parables? Reason number three, verse 14. 
He says, and in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, by hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes have they closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and they should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. He's quoting, saying that the, the Jews, now remember Isaiah's talking to the Jewish people. The book of Isaiah is talking to Jews. And sadly, this is exactly what the Jews largely did with Jesus. They saw Jesus healing and doing miracles and doing radical things, but with their eyes, they would not see. And even though they heard of the great things, their ears would not hear. And this is largely what happened to the Jewish people, like Isaiah the prophet said would happen. Um, and, and by the way, before we're too arrogant, the Gentiles believed in Jesus, the Jews didn't. So down with the Jews, said you know, Martin Luther and you know, uh, Adolf Hitler and other people throughout history. Well, that's really a wrong perspective. Um, the Bible does say the Jews have been blinded and they don't see that Jesus is the Messiah and they've rejected Jesus. But there is coming a time where the Jews will believe God still has a plan. Don't forget Romans 11, 25 through 27. The, um, this is one of those, don't be ignorant about this, the Bible says. And people are sadly so ignorant about this. It says in Romans 11, it says, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit. He's talking to Roman Gentiles. Don't be conceited, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, Jews, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion, the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That's the name of Israel when he's in trouble. Uh, For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. There will be a day where the blinders, remember it says there, blindness in part has happened to Israel. Just like Isaiah the prophet said, and that's part of the reason Jesus speaks in parables, is there's Jews that are listening there that they're still going to be in their blind state. And Jesus knows that. Um, now you say, well, Brad, come on, these are simple parables. Some people understand them, some people don't. Uh, why are we trying to make more of a supernatural thing? It is a supernatural thing. Um, These parables, if you ask me, are fairly easy to depict and understand. Um, But if you talk to Jews in Jerusalem about them, there's kind of this, Jews are smart people. Um, I've been in Jerusalem, talked to Jewish guys in their little shops in Jerusalem for hours at times, and have just said, hey, let's talk about Jesus in the Old Testament, your Hebrew Bible, and I'll show them how, you know, the, the, the Messiah that we believe is in their Bible and there's proof. And you know, there's 300 prophecies directly pointing to Jesus. And what's interesting is Jews will listen and they'll talk to you and they're very interested. And then you say, do you wanna accept Jesus as your personal savior? And then blinders, they're like, what are you talking about? Why would I do that? But we just talked for an hour and a half about this. Um, and there's a, there is a strange sort of condition that is, I believe, a supernatural blinding. In the same way, Jesus is doing that with the parables. Some people are gonna believe them and understand them, and some people won't, and that's just the question. Um, It's interesting to me that I think that's happening, not, by the way, with just Jews, but it's also happening um, with some Gentiles. Some people just will not uh, believe. Um, So uh, don't mistake, the Jews are uh, going to be saved. By the way, the Jews are not saved today by keeping the law. I I wanna remind you of that. Uh, They still need Jesus to be saved. 
So Israel's not saved yet. Acts chapter four, verses 10 through 12 um, talks about that. When Peter kind of calls out the Sanhedrin, says, you know, you guys are the ones who crucified Jesus. Um, and you're the ones who uh, rejected the cornerstone, verse 11 here, which has become the head of the corner. And then verse 12, Peter even says to the Jewish Sanhedrin, he says, verse 12, neither is there salvation in the other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men by whereby we must be saved. So Jesus is the, the answer for the Jews too. They just rejected Jesus uh, and they despised him, just like the prophet said they would. They despise him, reject him, and they will say, we will not have this man rule over us. These were all prophesied. By the way, um, this, this notion of which came first, you know, the, the chicken or the egg, the cart before the horse, belief or unbelief of the Jews, which one came first? Um, well, there's kind of a, a passage that's, that's kind of interesting. Would you keep your finger here and go with me to John chapter 12? And there's this progression, and I've shared this before, but I think this is a, a real key to understanding this blinding of the Jews and the hardening of their hearts toward the Messiah, Jesus. It's, it's also talked about here in John chapter 12, um, starting in verse 36. In John 12, 36, it says, Jesus says, while you have light, believe in the light that you may be children of the light. Remember, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so he's talking of himself here. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. But, verse 37, though he had done many, so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. So you might write your notes next to this. They would not believe on him, would not. Um, even though he did miracles, verse 37. So, Verse 38, that the saying of Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled, which spake, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, now when you see the word therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. And it's therefore the fact that they would not believe in Jesus. Therefore, they, verse 39, could not believe because that Isaiah said again, same Isaiah, Verse 40, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him, that is Jesus. Here's where, you know, John chapter 12 reveals this same thing. First, they would not believe so that what prophecy Isaiah said that they then could not believe so that they should not believe. This was the progression of their rebellion, and that's what happens in the heart of the person who's stubborn. They're the same people that Jesus is talking about in Matthew. Back to Matthew chapter 13, he, he quotes Isaiah just like John quotes Isaiah, but Jesus quotes Isaiah here basically saying, some people will not understand, and that's why these parables, that's gonna sort out the believer versus the unbeliever. And you say, well, doesn't the believer, the unbeliever have solely to do with the person, whether they believe or not? This is where you get into God's sovereignty versus human responsibility. And the answer is God has chosen people before the foundation of the earth. You're, you're divinely elected by God. Yeah, but, what I, but I chose God. Yeah, that's because you had free will and you chose your free will. Which one is it? And the Calvinists and Arminius have been arguing about this forever. And I say, yes, they're both true. You did choose to follow the Lord, thank the Lord, and the Lord chose you before the foundation of the earth. And I can't explain how that works out mathematically. I'm just glad it does. 
Uh, well, Brett, what if I don't know? If I, if I don't know? Well, it's easy. You can find out. Repent, be saved, accept Jesus, and then you'll know you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Um, but if you're sitting there, I think that's stupid, then you're probably not chosen. Maybe you're one of the people that have been blinded. Like, like it's just that simple. Um, uh, don't, don't overcomplicate things. They would not, so they could not, that they should not. That's what we learn. So it's the free will versus divine election arguments. Um, but I, I, I still wanna say, while I do believe in God's sovereignty and that he chose us before the foundation, I also think we have a responsibility to accept and believe in Jesus. And um, we'll get more into this, by the way, in greater depth as we get into the deeper into the New Testament. So why did Jesus speak in parables back to Matthew 13? Um, you know, he, he did it to reveal truth, uh, the secrets to the disciples, to conceal secrets to the unbelievers, but also to fulfill prophecy, those three things. Well, now back to our text here in Matthew 13, verse 16. It says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. So he just talked about the eyes and ears of the Jews, how they'd be blinded and deaf toward Jesus. But he's now talking to his disciples whose eyes and ears are open. Blessed or, you know, good, happy are your eyes and ears um, for they see and hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. Who's he talking about? Well, there's prophets even in the Old Testament, prophets like Elijah and Isaiah and Noah, or Moses, I should say. The prophets of the Old, Old Testament, um, they would have loved to see the Messiah, Jesus, God in the flesh, um, but they didn't get to see that. And those, those guys believed in God, um, but, uh, but he said, your eyes are blessed because you actually saw it. Your ears are blessed because you're it. And some of you might be saying, well, Brett, I wished I was like the disciples and I could see Jesus I think you might even have a, a, a thing where we could say even more blessed are you than the disciples. Even more blessed am I than what he, Jesus is even saying here. Why? Because not only do we have Jesus see the disciples, even when they saw the miracles, they still didn't fully get Jesus. You and I have the word of God written in black and white and red. And we have it, the whole story from beginning to end you and I, we have the, the full gospel and all of the theology anyone ever needed written for us in perfect clarity. And I feel like we're the blessed ones. We're blessed because we can see the story and it's written down and it's there to study and to know. And I think we're gonna be held accountable for that. We've been given much. To whom much is given, much is required. And I think we are more blessed than even these guys in this story. By the way, can I even add to that a little bit? I think you and I are uniquely blessed, and some of you might think of it as a curse, but I think we're uniquely blessed to live in the last days. I really think we might just be the last generation that's uh, before the rapture of the church and the second coming of the well, What if you're wrong, Brett? Could be, I've never been dogmatic about that one. But, but I do believe it's possible that we're living in those last days. And, and some people say, I can't believe things are so bad. But when the world says the world is falling apart, we as Christians say, no, everything's coming into place, falling into place. Uh, just like the Lord said, boy, all the stuff that's going on. You could talk about the world and globalism and the economy and the mark of the beast and buying and selling and, and uh, you know, world's leadership and struggles and like all these things that the Bible says, these are gonna be signs of the times. Man, we're just watching that stuff unravel right in front of us. And, and the stage has never been more perfectly set 
for the scenario that the Bible talks about. Uh, one world government, globalism, one world, new world order with one world leader, a new world currency, a new world religion. Man, the stage is so set for that. And by the way, we'll do Prophecy Update on Friday, just in a couple days, just kind of catching up on some of that stuff. To me, some people say, well, that's depressing. No, no, we're blessed. Our eyes and ears are seeing the things that the Bible said would come to pass and we're watching them come to pass right in front of us. Um, to me, I think we're gonna be without excuse at all because um, men, and, and it's interesting, the Bible says, don't be ignorant of the signs of the times. And yet so many people sadly are. They're just mad that their taxes are high and inflation is out of control. And that, you know, they're just mad about this and that and the other thing. But um, as Christians, we have that blessed hope of the return of the Lord. So he's saying, you're the blessed ones, Jesus says to the disciples, because you're believing, seeing, and hearing, um, which is so, so cool. And now we get back, uh, um, uh, you know, um, well, let, let's, let's read on verse, uh, verse um, 18 through 23 is kind of review. This is the commentary on the first parable. Uh, let's just read through that real quick. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower, which he talked about in verse, you know, verse three. Um, he said, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then cometh the wicked one, Satan, and catcheth away that which is sown in his heart. Uh, this is he which received the seed by the wayside, the fouled heart. Verse 20, but he that received the seed in stony places, the same as he that heareth the word and anon with joy receives it. Yet he hath no root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. So that was the shallow heart we talked about on Saturday and Sunday. Verse 22, he that received the seed among thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. That's the uh, distracted heart. And then verse 23, but he that received the seed in, is into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understands it, which also beareth fruit and shall bring forth some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. So that's the healthy soil, the healthy heart. And we looked at that. If you missed that, you can catch up on that study on Sunday. And now we come to the next parable of Jesus that's in this section. Parable number one, sow the seed. Parable number two, not unrelated, similar imagery, the parable of the tares. So we're still talking about a field that's supposed to bring, a farming field that's supposed to bring forth fruit. Same sort of imagery. So verse 24, he goes on. And it says, um, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and he went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the uh, householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Will thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and then, and then bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
So here we go. <laughs> There's one of the tares, uh, the wheat uh, thorns as we speak, as cell phones go off. Um, um, <laughs> it's robbing us of the word. Um, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Poor person's panicking. Um, okay, so... Um, so we've got, now there's, an, uh, first of all, we start with some interesting implications. Um, we, we assumed in our previous parable that, that seed is all good. Um, but as it turns out, there's good seed and then there's bad seed. That's what we learn in this part of the, the parable. And there's, there's seed that um, is interesting uh, that Jesus will explain that they are the, the seeds that grow tares. Now, what... What in the world is that all about? Uh, interesting, you know, kind of question. Um, uh, now, um, by the way, when we talk about this, um, the, the tares, the weeds, um, that's really what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 25 in the ESV version. It says, but while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds. So that's, that's the idea, weeds. But the word tear is kind of interesting because it's not just any old weed. The word tear um, is a... Um, uh, interesting uh, pronouncing this word. It's, uh, if you want to say it, it's didanion. Uh, didanion is the, the way you say this. But it's a kind of weed that uh, some call a darnel, resembling, uh, you know, like a, a, a bearded darnel. Uh, what does that look like? Well, I've even brought pictures for you since uh, uh, some of you have probably even seen stuff that looks kind of like wheat, but it's actually a tear. Uh, the reason that's interesting is because one of the things Satan does is he's a duplicator and an imitator. And if you've seen sort of the, 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 the bearded Darnell weed, it very much looks a lot like a, a, you know, a stalk of wheat, but it's not. It's thinner, weaker, and it doesn't bring forth any good fruit. It only brings more seed to sow more weeds in a good field. So the enemy, uh, you know, Satan is a trickster who likes to duplicate. And, and, and at what point was the bad seed Sown, it tells us here in verse 25, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. So if, if we follow through with the imagery of the parable of the sower from Sunday and Saturday, the implication is that, you know, while the Lord is sowing good seed of the word to his church and their hearts hopefully are receiving good seed, the enemy's desire is to plant weeds, tares among the good seed. How does he do that? Well, while good men were sleeping, that's when it happened. See, that's what I would say. I added the word good because that's one of the things Paul talked about in Acts chapter 20 when he was talking to the pastors of the church and el the elders of the church at Ephesus. He was saying, we did not neglect to share the whole counsel and we're supposed to watch and warn of the wolves that will come and try to you know, uh, take advantage of the sheep. And um, one of the, the roles of a pastor is to be our shepherd, uh, under shepherd, Jesus is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the, great, the, the chief shepherd. But um, as pastors, we need to be making sure that we're not sleeping while the tares are sown in the church. And that's something that's happened. We're living in a day where the field is full of tares and it's, it's, it's come to pass. Um, so that's what happens when you see these churches that put... Um, you know, uh, crazy notions in their sermons of wokeism and all kinds of kind of weird stuff, LGBTQIA, CRT, uh, deconstruction of faith, love wins, there's no hell or no eternal hell. Um, these, these, they're relying on, um, you know, sort of the newspaper and their latest trends to let seed be sown in churches 
that's, that's bringing forth the, the terrors. And it's, it's something that's dangerous and dastardly. Um, I believe uh, to be uh, consistent with interpretation in parables, we already know birds are evil, and that was Satan in the first part of this chapter. We also know there's good seed, and, and um, that's the word. But the bad seed, could it be sort of word, quote, unquote word, like bad words or words that are not true? Um, we know the, the, the true and living word of God is the good seed. But the bad seed sort of looks like the word, but it's not. So when was it sown? While men slept, verse 25. Um, uh, and so, so um, you know, the, the tares, what's wrong with having tares in your, in your uh, wheat field? Well, it, it, they compete. The tares compete for nutrients from the soil and takes up unnecessary room. And when you try to harvest it, it becomes sort of tricky, not just uh, harvesting a bunch of wheat, but your wheat becomes very impure with all the tares and it sort of, it, it mixes it up. Um, if you're a, a student of the whole Bible, one of the things you know is mixture is never appreciated by the Lord. Um, he says, come ye out from among them, be ye separate. And the idea of mixing good seed with bad seed. Um, and man, there's a whole uh, thing of um, a study of the Bible that you could do on seed. Um, because remember of the seed of the woman, the serpent's head would be crushed? Remember this whole thing? That's the Proto-Evangelium. The first mention of the gospel in the Bible is in the book of Genesis. And it's funny how it said the seed of the woman, but what happened after that? Satan goes on a rampage trying to corrupt the seed of man. How did he do that? Do you remember? There's a strange verse, and man, I don't have time to get into this tonight, but do you remember there in Genesis where it says that the sons of men came and had you know, sexual intercourse with the daughters of men. And you're like, wait, wait, wait what's this? Sons of God that have this inter sexual relationships? And it brought forth a, a uh, sort of a group of giants. Remember that whole thing? You're like, Brett, that sounds weird. Is, are we suddenly in Lord of the Rings? Uh, well, kind of, yeah. Now, isn't it interesting that every culture, whether you were separated in the South American culture or the Middle Eastern culture or Far East or wherever you were, there were all these legends throughout millennia of giants. Um, and, uh, and, and so you kind of wonder, is that just, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk? Is it just some kind of a fairy tale? Well, that is. But as it turns out, the Bible says there were giants in the land. And the Bible talks a lot about giants and it tells us where they came from. They came from this strange um, relationship between these, these demonic fallen angels who left their estate and had sexual relations with the daughters of men. Brett, that's weird. I know. But then the next chapter, you've got the world so corrupt at that point that the Lord says that everybody was corrupted and, and, and there's an, it's more than just people were being corrupt. He, he actually says the seed of man was corrupt. What? The seed. This is where seed in the Bible, it's throughout the whole Bible, this idea of seed. And, and uh, who was the only one who was not? Now you might say, well, Noah was the only one who wasn't corrupt like all the others. It doesn't say that. It says that Noah was the only one who didn't have corrupted seed. You say, Brett, okay, so let me get this straight. There were giants in the land because of this weird relationship. So the Lord says, I'm gonna destroy the earth and Noah's the only one without corrupted seed. So they, the Lord destroyed the whole earth except for Noah and his family. How then did the giants pass through Noah's family 
And there's still giants like the sons of Anak and others that came and Goliath and Gath. Where did that come from? Well, that's just it. It, it could be linked to part of Noah's daughters-in-laws. Are you guys with me on this? Or they're like, it, the, the, seed, the corrupt seeds still kind of squeak through. But as it turns out, I think you say, why would Satan want to corrupt the seed of man? Because it would be the seed of woman that would actually be the one that crushes the head of the serpent. And Satan had this great desire to corrupt the seed so that that wouldn't happen. But if you understand the whole virgin birth, it goes into, there is no seed in a woman. Uh, the seed is the word sperm in the Bible, by the way. Uh, and it's interesting, I mean, great study. It's called carpology. It's the study of the seed throughout the word and it's worth, worth uh, study if you have time. Um, but all that to say, um, I've got, to, I've got to warn us, you know, that while men are sleeping, they're sowing seed in the church today and it's, and it's going crazy. Bad teaching, people that are getting away from scripture and groups have come in, cults. How did cults come in? They sowed tares among the wheat. Um, and, um, and you might say, okay, Brett, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a worrisome thing. Um, but I think the tares today are, are getting uh, exponentially worse. When I see churches, you know, put on their front of their website, churches that were once, I would send people from anything, go, man, that's a great church. If you live up there, go to that church, it's awesome. They're the ones that now in the last two years put, you know, um, white fragility on the front of their website is recommended reading, which is a unredemptive, horrible take on racism. Uh, it totally messes up the whole question and it only makes matters worse. If you're a white person, you, there's no way you can be redeemed. You're already irredeemable in racism. You are a racist. And you know, like there's no forgiveness. There's no, you know, like it's a horrible, horrible thing. That, and you know, fortunately that church that I'm thinking of uh, took it off after about a year of it being on the front of their website. I think they finally realized, oh, this doesn't really line up with the scriptures. Um, but it's heartbreaking to see how people are being deceived and it's happening over and over again. And I think we, not just pastors, but you and us, we need to be not sleeping on our, on our guard. Don't let the enemy come and sow tares in your family. Um, you know, your kids are being targeted to have the, the seed of tares. Um, question, who gets thrown in the fire uh, at the end of this? Do you see what it says there? Uh, let them go, both grow, but then at the end of the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather together the first the tares, bind them in bundles and burn them. Well, again, Jesus is gonna give us a little bit of a commentary on this. And look at, let's, let's jump ahead to verse 41. He says in verse 41, the son of man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and cast them into the furnace of fire and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. He's defining what's, what he's talking about when you cut out the tares and throw them in the fire. This is the, these are the people who are gonna be harvested at the end. Now, the idea of the harvest, Jesus talks about this, that the field is white with harvest, talking about people that need to be saved and harvested for the kingdom. It's all part of the imagery here. But there's some people that are gonna be plucked out of that harvest um, because they're, they, they were taken of the tares and they're the ones who are gonna be thrown into the fire, uh, the kingdom of the tares. Um, the point is, I don't want anybody to be duped uh, and tricked into hell. Um, how long are the tares around in this story? Till the time of the harvest. 
um, that's kind of interesting. By the way, we'll get, we'll get more into this when the harvest comes, but isn't it interesting? Why do, people ask that question. Why does the Lord just get rid of Satan right now and get rid of all the people that are evil and let's just clean it up now? Well, the, the truth is he will, um, but there's a patience on the Lord's part where he's waiting and letting the field grow and he wants as many wheat stalks to grow as possible that are gonna be part of the kingdom. Um, but there's coming a time where those tares will be plucked out and thrown into the fire. That is coming. So that's kind of this uh, imagery of, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're still sticking to the, the, uh, the imagery of the seed, but in this one we have bad seed or bad word, fake word um, that's kind of come into place. Now, that brings us now to parable number three, not unrelated still. Uh, one of the mistakes people make is they sort of disconnect these parables and they act like they have nothing to do with one another. Huge mistake. Um, we have here the parable of the mustard seed, uh, verse 31. It says, another parable put he forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it's grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. What's going on here? Well, that's where you're gonna find disagreement. Some people think this is a great thing. Oh, there's a seed planted and it's good. Well, we shouldn't assume that. And it has to do with expositional constancy. First of all, we know that the seed that's good is compared to wheat or grain. That's the good seed. So we've got suddenly a mustard seed, which is a different kind of seed and a different kind of fruit, if you would. It comes out as a spice. Um, and it works out nicely on a hot dog, uh, a little mustard. Uh, we like that. But this mustard, you know, what's a mustard seed look like? Well, it's small. This is actually a mustard seed. Of course, on this screen, it looks like about the size of a beach ball, but it's actually uh, really, really pretty tiny. Now, by the way, I gotta, I gotta warn you, this is where those people are like, aha, we've got it. The Bible's full of contradictions. And this is one because Jesus said that the mustard seed is the least of all seeds. And we know that it is not that there are smaller seeds than the mustard seed. So, oh, well, we should close our Bibles and go home. Uh, Jesus is not real. The church is all fake. Um, like, it's so ridiculous. Um, and by, by the way, um, scholars would add and say, um, this is what they believed at that time. The people, the people believed the mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds. They didn't know about the science of seed at that time, but they perceived it as the least of the seeds. It was also least in value. Sure, it had value as mustard is a spice, but way less in value uh, than all the others uh, because it really just grows on bushes on the ground like a plant. Um, we do have this, uh, does it grow up here? I know in Oregon, Southern Oregon, where I grew up, we had mustard seed just like this growing, but I don't see this much up here as I did down there. It's a little different climate where I was raised in Southern Oregon. But, but here's where we have to kind of do some assessment. So this is not the seed of wheat or grain, but it's a mustard seed, and then it grows into a tree. And, and this is one of the things we have to acknowledge is uh, uh, abnormal. Well, Brett, I've looked this up, and the Greek word is tree, but it also can be a large bush. Um, that's true, but a mustard plant is not typically a, a place where a, a bunch of birds come and lodge in its branches. 
So I have to agree with Dr. J. Vernon McGee on this one where he says, this is a story of something that is a mutation. Something's gone wrong. There's something that's bad. This mustard seed grows into a giant tree where a bunch of birds. Now, if you're using expositional constancy in these parables, which is something I wouldn't say is an absolute rule. I think we make a mistake when, when we say everything has to be exactly the same. But as a rule of thumb, it's helpful to say, okay, generally in these parables, the birds are probably something evil. Um, and I think that's a safe bet. Um, so the idea of the birds, what, was, what were the birds in the first parable? Elise? Satan, it was Satan. Uh, and it was clear, Jesus told us that, right? Birds, the birds that take and pluck the seed, that's the evil one, Satan. So um, that, was, that was a warning to us. This parable reveals the outward growth, perhaps, and this is, I, I agree with J. Vernon McGee on this one, that he, he sees this as the growth of the organized church. And the church and the world have become horribly mixed. Um, it's like there's been real integration between man and the church and man and the world. And, and basically they act and live much like today. So the, so, so the Christians of the world should be salt and light, but not necessarily mustard. That, that's what Jay Vernon said. Um, so we can say, well, what is this mustard tree where the birds come and lodge? And birds lodging in its branches is not really a good thing. And, and a lot of scholars, not all of them, would say this is where the enemy, Satan, has lodged in a place that has grown, that was supposed to be part of the kingdom, the church, that it starts to get become corrupt. We saw that, by the way, very early in the church history. In fact, if you even go to the seven churches of Asia Minor that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation, even in the first century, the church is already off course. The church at Ephesus, they left their first love. And so Jesus said, I have this against you. Um, and, and see, when Jesus was correcting the church, those were the little birds of evil, if you would, that were lodging in a place that maybe was never meant to be a place where birds could come. The birds are the ones that took the seed and the, that fell by the wayside. And, um, and I'm afraid Christendom, Christendom is a fancy word saying uh, the, uh, the church throughout the world, um, today is basically a mustard tree filled with lots of dirty birds. That's, that's, that's perhaps what's being saying, saying here. Now, people try and equate this. They say, well, Brett, Jesus talked about if you have faith in Matthew 17, 20, for example, if you have faith, the grain of a mustard, you shall say in this mountain, remove hence, you know, and, and it'll be moved. You know, that's the idea. But um, the idea is it's more about the size and it's not about the seed. So that's, for expositional constancy, some people say, see, this mustard seed is always a good thing, so this has to be a good tree, and the birds are sweet little birds, and it's a place where people can come and rest. That's what some people will say this is a, a parable about. But I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is warning, don't let stuff grow where the birds come and lodge there. Don't let the birds come and lodge. That's not what the Lord um, is saying. So church is allowing a morphing of what, was natural, the growth of his church into something that was monstrous and sin is suddenly at home in the branches, never getting away from sharing the true word. So see, I don't see a difference. We're still talking about the truth versus false. Um, and that is good seed versus bad seed. And when the birds of the air come and mess, these are all warnings that as I see it, they need to be sort of interpreted in the same vein. And we'll do one more parable because we got just a few more minutes. And this is an, uh, one single verse parable, parable number four. So parable number one, the parable of the sower, 
Number two, the parable of the tares. Number three, the parable of the mustard seed. And that brings us to parable number four, the parable of the leaven, uh, verse 33. It says, and another parable he, uh, spake he unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Uh, that's a very short little parable. Uh, what did this lady do? She took some leaven and packed it in with her wheat and it, suddenly it grew and became, the whole thing became leavened. A big puffy Pillsbury Doughboy croissant uh, or whatever it was. Uh, and you say, okay, that's, that's, that's a weird parable. Uh, I don't understand the mystery of that. Well, if we have the consistency in hermeneutics, the seed is the word. The tares were deceptive, wrong, evil words. The birds are Satan. Leaven is always a, a type of what in the Bible? Sin. Keep that in mind because there's, I think, well-meaning people that try to make it, well, in this case, leaven is the gospel. Um, there's some commentaries that say that. that here, leaven is the gospel and it makes the, the, you know, the whole world grow. But we're taking the wheat, remember constancy, the wheat and the grain is good. This woman has a bunch of wheat and grain and she packs leaven in it and suddenly it gets all puffed up. Um, uh, what is the Bible imagery when it talks about being puffed up? Pride. Pride. Leaven is always sin and it messes up stuff. Um, that's kind of important. Would you keep your finger here and go to 1 Corinthians chapter five or jot it down in your notes for speed because we need to wrap this up. But in 1 Corinthians five, Jesus, uh, his parable about the leaven, man, there's so much uh, sort of biblical reference to this. So the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter five, there's kind of an interesting mention of this. It says in verse one, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. I mean, this is happening in the Corinthian church. Some guy is sleeping with his stepmom. And verse two, you are puffed up. What, what does that mean? Prideful. And you have not rather mourned, they should have been sick and sad by this sin, that he hath done this deed might, uh, might be taken away from among you. For verily, uh, for I verily as absent in body, present in spirit as I have judged, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that has done so this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is talking about church discipline. There's a sin, there's sins that get so um, overly over the top, they start to leaven the church. Where the sin starts to be, ah, oh, it's all right, whatever, you shouldn't be upset about that. We actually rejoice that we allow sinners into our church. And there's a point where that can start to be leavening the lump, the, the church. So there's a point where you need to not, not allow that person to be in the church where the wheat is being sown, the, so, the seed. He goes on in verse six, he says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as, there, uh, as you are unleavened for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. See, leaven is always sin, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
So, you know, this is Paul jumping on this idea of don't let the leaven creep into the church. By you guys celebrating this dude that's sleeping with his mother or his stepmom, uh, and you guys are celebrating that, you're letting the whole leaven creep into your church and it's being accepted. And that's, that's one of the rules uh, of, the, of the church. So back to this story here in Matthew, what we're seeing is this um, you know, leaven uh, puffs up the whole loaf. A little sin ruins everything. We need to recognize this uh, good and bad for us. Now, uh, I'd like to end with something that's so controversial and, and half of you are gonna probably hate me for this. Uh, we'll leave you with warm, fuzzy feelings. Uh, no, actually, I, I, I hate to leave it here, but I'm going to. Um, notice that it was, it was the, uh, the man who was sowing the seed in the previous, but now we got a woman putting leaven in the, 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 the seed of the meal, of the grain. You say, Brett, are you gonna go there? Yes, I am. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's interesting to me um, that right now, I, you know, Athey Creek is we're what we call a complementarian church. And there's a version that's different than us. They're egalitarian. And what the main difference is, is the egalitarian church says, we should all be able to do whatever. Uh, uh, there's neither male nor female in the church. See, in Christ, there's neither male nor female. I, I, the Lord blesses both. Male and female, both are hugely blessed. But when it comes to church leadership, we just take the Bible literally. When it says, well, you know, you can jot it down. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's 1 Timothy, actually, uh, where it, it, I'll just read it quickly since we're running out of time. But this is where that one of those controversial things. And it says, um, when Paul was talking about the church, he says, let the woman learn with silence and all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over the man uh, in the church is the idea, but to be in silence for Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Um, you say, Brad, I hate that verse as a woman. Oh, there's so much to this. Now, let me just say this. The, the Bible has such a wonderful role and place for women. Women are not second-class citizens in the church. Um, women are amazing. Without women in our church, well, first of all, none of us would exist. That's, that's a, kind of a big deal. Um, also, uh, without women in our church, we'd be the most boring group of people in the whole wide world. And there'd be no sensitivity, there'd be no creativity. Like, there's so much we'd be lacking. So th this is not to say men and women, you know, women are less than men or anything like that. But there is an order that the Bible puts that's very clear. And it says the men are to be the ones involved with the teaching of the word uh, to the congregation. Now, at Eighth Greek, we have women who are like, you know, Titus chapter two talks about older women teaching the younger women. It's not that women can't teach, but they're just not to teach the congregation. There's amazing teaching women who teach other women, and it's outstanding. We have great women teachers in that way. Um, but when it comes to teaching the congregation, God says, I want the men to do that. And we live in a society that, in my humble opinion, we just say, well, that's so antiquated. And we know women's lib has done this and that. So George Fox thinks basically like uh, I had a freshman tell me the, uh, the other day that one of the George Fox professors said, there's um, a lot of churches around that you can go to, but whatever you do, don't go to Athey Creek. Um, and and I, I'm okay with that. Uh, I, I'm okay with that because there's some wacko theology coming out. The best doc, uh, teachers at George Fox are your math and science and civil engineer teachers. They're the ones that really know Jesus and stuff. But the, uh, there's other ones that are, I, I would, they don't even believe in the inspired word of God, some of their theology professors. It's horrifying to me. 
Um, but when it comes to this role, that, that's where I get into biggest trouble. I've been yelled at right in front of church here by George Fox professors that because we don't have women pastors. But it is interesting to me that the Bible says when it comes to handling the sowing of the seed, the teaching of the word, if you would, um, men are supposed to do that. And then in Jesus's parables, I don't think it should just go unnoticed that the man, Jesus, is sowing the seed and then his undersowers that are defined in you know, Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2, where it says the man should be teaching the word. But um, why, see, this is what happens. How can George Fox say women can be senior pastors or Bible teachers of the congregation? And some of you might even like some of the women that teach big congregations, like, Brett, I like so-and-so or whatever. I'm not saying that they're not capable. I think there's women that are way smarter than I am and are capable. It's just that the Bible says no, and people that are in rebellion against God's word are saying, we don't like that, that's old. That was during Paul's day when women were being limited. Wait a minute, Paul gave the reason and it goes way beyond Paul's culture and it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That was the example Paul gives. He says, it's back in the Garden of Eden that set this precedent because Eve was deceived, not Adam. Now, if you study church history, um, one thing you'll find is there's interesting, uh, some of the big cults that have come and gone uh, were all linked to women getting into the church and planting seed that was not true seed. Just look it up. Don't just take my word for it. There's, you know, the Montanists, and we can even talk about some of the early origins of some of the cults that are around today. One of the big ones uh, is New Age today. Uh, where does New Age, New Age is just an old lie. New Age is the oldest lie in the book. It's the same thing that basically Satan was trying to do with Eve, enlightenment, your eyes will be opened and you'll have understanding. And she fell for that. Adam didn't fall for that, which is kind of interesting. He fell for something else. I'm not gonna talk about that. <laughs> but the old lie of you shall be enlightened, your third eye of understanding, you almost never see men leading the New Age movement. It's always women who are, in their defense, they wanna go deeper and they have a, a deeper sensitivity to go into the deeper things. Um, that's something that I think the Lord says, nope, I'm not gonna allow that to happen in my church. I want men to be the sort of the guardians of doctrine and theology. And some people really don't like that. And you might say, Brad, I think you're a chauvinist and you hate women. Well, you don't know me then and we need space in the parking lot anyway. Uh, so, <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I'm just kidding. Just a little joke. No, I'm just gonna say it. Um, you know, Athey Creek's not gonna you know, cave as so many churches have. We're not gonna cave and say, well, suddenly we're gonna have women pastors and teach. I'm sorry, uh, it's not gonna happen. But I have to end with this. Women are amazing. We, we, we are so blessed by the, the great women of our congregation, man. Let's give a round for that. Um, women are amazing. Um, you know, it's funny because we're all horrible sinners and, and that's the truth of the matter, but, but um, that's just the order that the Lord says and it's not a better than or less than, it's just what God says, so we're gonna stick with that. Well, uh, all that to say, we've tapped into the first uh, three uh, of, the, of the little parables here uh, and we're going to, uh, or did we get in four today? Yeah, we got into four uh, and we'll keep going uh, next week. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your word and it is a great um, standard for us, Lord. And, and we see where people, the temptation with cultural pressures and cultural worldviews to sort of um, eclipse the truth of your word, Lord. And even the, the scriptures that make us uncomfortable, 
Um, Lord, we, we wanna just go on record uh, before you to say, Lord, your will be done, not ours. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are wiser than our thoughts. And I would just pray that um, we, would, um, we would set our opinions based on your word, not on our feelings or what culture is cramming down our throat, Lord. So help us with that. And, and I pray as we go through your word that you'd find a pliable, shapeable people, that we would fall in line with your word. Um, Lord, if I've misspoken on anything here, Lord, I pray you would correct that. Lord, you're able to raise people up, shut doors. Um, you're able to quiet people. Um, I pray that your word would go out with clarity and with soundness. Um, bless this group, Lord, that has taken time to study scripture tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.